0: Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell
1: is that Mike Florio's job?
2: So what the f*** do know? It's a Monday PFTPM from the bar, and we've got Jaguars general manager Dave Caldwell coming up momentarily. Before we get to that, though, we me say a few things about the late Don Shula Hall of Famer, one of the great coaches of all time. And he was the man back when I discovered football in the 70s. And, you know, when you're a little kid and... For all you know, the Dolphins are a powerhouse. The idea that the Dolphins just kind of popped onto the scene in the late 60s and became that good of a team that quickly, that's unheard of back then. Those were the years of the five-year plan, the time that it took to develop and grow through the draft. You didn't have free agency. You didn't have other ways to make your team better quickly. And for Don Shula to take a team that was an expansion team and to turn it that fast, into a Super Bowl team, a team that went to three straight Super Bowls, lost Super Bowl six to the Cowboys, won Super Bowl seven after going 17-0, and still the only perfect season with a Super Bowl win on the end of it, and then winning another Super Bowl, Super Bowl eight, and continuing to be a great coach. Even though they didn't win another Super Bowl under Don Shula, he would coach the team through 1995. He retired with a winning percentage above two out of three. So on average, he won more than two out of three games that he coached in the regular season. It really was an incredible run. And when you think back to the 70s, and, and again, for me, it's still vivid because those were the years that I discovered it, that I found it, that I realized it. I looked up to these guys like Don Shula, Chuck Knoll, Tom Landry, Bud Grant, John Madden. And there are other great coaches in that era, Chuck Knox, Bum Phillips. I mean, there were so many great coaches In the 70s, George Allen, who was the coach of the Washington team, that the Dolphins beat. It it really was a special time in professional football, and the league was dominated by the Dolphins, then the Steelers, then the Cowboys, then the Raiders got their Super Bowl win, and there was a small handful of teams that really ran the show. And Don Shula, in many ways, was the godfather because he had that 17-0 season. And to do what he did, as quickly as he did it, with a team that was starting – from absolute scratch. Now, Steelers fans would say that their franchise was so bad when Chuck Knoll got there in 1969, it was basically the same thing. But Shula still did it faster, right? The year of the Immaculate Reception, the Steelers lost that next week to the Dolphins, who were on their way to that 17-0 season. So it, it was a, a great, great run for Don Shula as the Dolphins' head coach. And it was very, very saddening to see that he had passed today at the age of 90. But it also brings back some great memories of football back in the 70s, a different time, a different place, and an era where the coaches were even more larger than life than they are today. And they are today to a certain extent. But maybe it's because I was a kid then. And, and now I kind of know these guys and there's less of, uh, uh, of this awe. But, but, boy, back in the 70s, there was something about just the names, Shula, Noel, Grant, Landry, Madden. There was just something about that that inspired both awe and, uh, and passion for football. So with that said, we're going to move on to Jaguars general manager, Dave Caldwell, and then we'll see you back later this week for some more PFT PM. Up next, our interview with Jaguars GM, Dave Caldwell. And as promised, here he is, entering season number eight as the general manager of the Jacksonville Jaguars. He is Dave Caldwell. David, welcome back. How are you, pal?
3: Thanks for having me. I'm I'm doing
2: great. And yourself? I'm doing great. I learned something about you today. Doing a little research, you went to the same school as Don Shula, John Carroll. And also, John Carroll is like a hotbed of NFL figures. How in the hell did it happen that so many people connected to the NFL ended up at John Carroll?
3: Well, I think you have to start with Don Shula. And, uh, you know, it's a sad day for all, all of us uh, Blue Streak alumni, which you probably didn't know. That was John Carroll's um, uh, name, right? John Carroll Blue Streaks. Did you know, Did that? Not
2: know
3: that? All right. Well, uh, you know, Coach Shula obviously was, was the first, and um, he's a legend at John Carroll, obviously a legend in the NFL. And it's uh, sad to learn of his passing today and had a lot to do with uh, myself and probably a lot of the uh, NFL – uh, alumni that went to John Carroll about going there.
2: Yeah, I mean Nick Casario, Josh McDaniels, London Fletcher, Brian and Chris Polian's, the sons of Bill Polian, Tom Telesco, Greg Roman. It, it is amazing to me when you consider it's a small school like that, and it just kind of, it, it kind of happened. Um, did, did did that attract you there, or did you not realize at the time you went there that that this was? that there was going to be this NFL factory coming out of the blue streets?
3: Well, at the time, we didn't know about that. The Don Chula effect definitely did. And obviously, you know, uh, being a Division III athlete, there there wasn't a lot of options. And, uh, you know, John Carroll ha- had a great education, but also had the, the Don Shula name back when I was going to college. And uh, they obviously used it as a recruiting tool. And um, and I, the interesting thing about all of our past at the NFL is I felt like they all kind of, Uh, Came in different different venues,
2: and uh, other trivia for those out there looking to know more about John Carroll University. Tim Russert went there, as did Eric Carmen. Do 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 you know Eric Carmen's claim to fame? I do not. That you are letting down the Blue Streaks. Eric Carmen, who sang "Hungry Eyes" from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, one hit wonder Eric Carmen went to John Carroll. So now you know. Now I I knew more about John Carroll than you did a little
3: unknown fact I grew up right down the street from Tim Russert in Buffalo New York
2: I assume you were a Bills fan growing up like like he obviously was he was the number one Bills fan of all time
3: yep absolutely and Bills fans are they're passionate just like he was
2: how how hard was it for you once you got into the business to reconcile the passion that drew you to football growing up a Bills fan, and when you're a true fan of a team, you love that team, and you hate every other team. There isn't a hierarchy of, well, here's my number one team, here's my number two team, here's my number... No, it's the Bills, and everybody else can go to hell. Once you get into the business, isn't it weird to have to put that down, and set that aside, and kind of wall that off, and forget about it, and your loyalty is only to whichever team is employing you at that time?
3: Yeah, it was challenging at first, and... Uh especially growing up in Buffalo, where there is not, you know, Buffalo is not a hotbed for college football, like down here in Florida or Atlanta, where I lived. And, and you, you know, the allegiance to your college or your SEC teams in, in the South is, is very great, even sometimes greater than your NFL teams. And in Buffalo, you know, the bills were, were one man show besides the Sabres and the bills. And uh, those were that, that's what we lived for and, and growing up. And I, I remember where I was uh, during all four of the uh, the Super Bowl losses uh, growing up. And then, going to college in Cleveland, and it was, a, it was a challenge. But let it be known that uh, whenever we play the Bills, I still get a lot of uh, texts and emails and, uh, from uh, some friends and relatives that, that are still in Buffalo, that uh, they, they don't care I, that I work for the Jacksonville Jaguars. They are still loyal Bills fans.
2: What kind of text messages did you get after beating the Bills in the playoffs a few years ago then?
3: Well, that was an interesting one. That was probably more challenging for my family than anything else. And I, I, had, I told my wife, I said, you have the, the no uh, social media policy for, uh, for the week leading up to that game and the week after that game. And, uh, you know, I think uh, she learned the hard way that, that you know, the, the loyalty uh, may be a little bit bigger for, for the, the Bills fans than it is for family.
2: Yeah, uh, and, and and that's the thing of all teams, the Bills would be the hardest ones to segregate and separate. That when you think about the four Super Bowl losses, which I, I assume the first one is the one that stands out the most because it was so close. Is that the one, as a Bills fan, that you think to that that just like still has that that gaping wound?
3: Yeah, I think the first one, obviously, that the game was so close and and uh, for the first time of being in the Super Bowl and. And being there and then having a game being a 47-yard field goal wide right. And um, I think uh, that was probably the, the most disappointing one. And then they were all disappointing, but I uh, shouldn't take away from what that, those teams accomplished. And that, that, that was an incredible feat.
2: It really is amazing. And I think as time has gone by, there's been a greater appreciation of getting to the Super Bowl, suffering the ultimate disappointment, going back to zero and zero, doing it again, getting back to the Super Bowl, losing, going back to zero and zero, lather, rinse, repeat. You know, there was a time where I think that, that like, the the team that lost the Super Bowl was regarded just as a loser, like like get away. And I think that it's different now. I really do think that the team that, that doesn't win the Super Bowl isn't remembered in that derisive sense that it used to be. Have you sensed a change in that regard, that it's not – as big of a negative to have lost the super bowl that people appreciate how positive it is and how hard it is to just get there
3: well i think that's the point is how hard it is just to get there Um, obviously that the challenging part is once you're there you realize how hard it is to get there it makes the loss even that much more um discouraging because you know that it's how hard it was to get there and it gets so close and to lose a game but Obviously, the objective is to win it, and um, that's, that's everyone that goes to work in the NFL on a daily basis. That's what we strive for.
2: Well, and you know how hard it is to get to the brink of it, to have it right there, and to have it not work, and then how that can contribute to everything being thrown off uh, point. I mean, you don't need to be reminded of this 10-point lead in the fourth quarter. should have been a 17-point lead if the officials didn't have their heads up their butts and realized what Miles Jack had accomplished ripping the ball out from Deion Lewis, recovering it, getting up and running for a touchdown. They blew that. At least you got possession of the ball. You should have had the touchdown. But I think it shows, And, and you're not the only team that's gone through this. I think when you get that close, sometimes it is hard to go back to zero and zero and remember what you did, every box you had to check to get there. There's like a temptation to fast forward back to the postseason and do it again, and it's not nearly that easy.
3: No, it's not, and I think I think guys forget and players forget. Coaches, I remember that training camp that we had in '17, and that was a brutal training camp. And Coach Marone did a heck of a job getting the team ready. And um, nobody expected us to to even have a winning season, let alone get to where we got to that year. And and it's amazing what a team can accomplish when they play together as a team. And and um, when you have all eleven guys on one side of the ball competing and doing their job collectively, uh, far outweighs on any one. Person or talent on any team?
2: In a weird sort of way, the ingredients are there to get back to that kind of mindset this year because I've already seen the post draft power rankings that have the Jaguars at number 32. And yes, it pisses you off when you see that, but that can become one of the ingredients that is used to get the guys to rally around each other, to do everything they have to do, to buckle down and take it one brick at a time before you end up standing in front of,
3: of a wall. Where goes your power rankings?
2: I haven't done them yet, right. we haven't done them yet. I do them, I have yet to do them. I'll do them later, I'll get back mm-hmm. to you. When yeah, I have sure, the Jaguars, uh, at, at least at 30. But here's the thing, somebody's gotta be there. Somebody's gotta be at the bottom. They can't all be tied at 15 or 16. But mm-hmm. I've already seen somebody else's that had the Jaguars at 32. But But my point is, I think that, and I've seen teams do this, where it does become that rallying cry, and it is a way to get people to forget about anything but the task at hand. And if you can get the guys pissed off and lathered up, it's good. It's positive. It's one of the ingredients in turning a team around.
3: No, I think you're right. And and right now it's just noise. I mean, it it is everybody's got an opinion, and and I I feel like, and our team feels like. What we've done in the offseason, we may have gotten rid of some known commodities, but every move that we made was to, to put a better product on the field this year. And and we feel like we've done that. We, we've created depth at every position, created competition at, at all positions, and have a good core of young players that are coming back that really produced last year as rookies and, and second-year guys like DJ Chark, um, you know, Josh Allen, Jawan Taylor had great rookie years, Gardner Minshew. Um, You can make the case he was arguably the best rookie quarterback last year in in many, many areas of the game, uh, wins being number one, and um, a good young offensive line. So we feel like there's some pieces in place here to really go into the season and uh, put our best foot forward and have a good winning season.
2: And hang on a second. Are are you going to suggest to me that wins are a quarterback stat? Is that what you're saying?
3: Well, everyone seems to point to that, but uh, it it does happen to be one of them. You'll
2: get your fine letter in the mail. Matt Casey, the coordinating producer of PFT Live, will find anyone who describes a quarterback as a winner. But he did have success when he was playing. I'll give you that. Some would say Kyler Murray had a better performance overall, given the statistics that actually, you know, determined quarterback play. But Minshew was, I think, special last year. And he resonated with the fan base. We talked to him about that at the Super Bowl. Why is there this nagging sense that the Jaguars organization has a wandering eye and is looking for an upgrade over Minshew? Because there is a palpable sense out there that, that you're willing to explore somebody who maybe would give you a better chance to win than Minshew if that person is available.
3: Sure. Well, I think uh, probably because he was a little bit of an unknown commodity. He was a six-round pick. He didn't have um, the name recognition of being a first-round pick, or maybe the team didn't invest into him like other first-round picks that could get the benefit of the doubt. But he was rookie of, the week, rookie of the Week seven times last year. Um, so I think that was the most out of any rookie and um, definitely the most out of any rookie quarterback. So, um, but wasn't even on the Rookie of the Year ballot, which was interesting. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so, so I think that's, you know, I think that's how he got here. And I think the way people maybe perceive him because he was a six-round pick is probably why they think we have a wandering eye. With that being said, we're always about competition and and getting the best people here. So uh, we do need depth at that position and and bringing in other guys.
2: Yeah, Coach Marone recently said that the team will consider the possibility of bringing in veteran quarterbacks. There aren't many out there. Would you be looking for somebody to come in and be the backup to Gardner Minshew? Or is this somebody to come in, push him, challenge him? And, hey, if he ends up being a better option than Minshew, so be it.
3: Yeah, I think you always want somebody there to push him, challenge him. Also, for – security and and the Bills sleep at night because as as we know, as we learned last year, you're eleven or twelve plays away from losing your starting quarterback for for a large portion of the time. So um last year we went in the season and Nick Foles got injured we uh, eleven plays in the first game of the season and and that's where kind of the, the mania kind of took off from there. And um so you always want to have um some type of depth at that position and somebody to come in and push push your starter. Gardner does not need anybody to be to push him. Um, he is uh, incredibly uh, uh, he, he's got an incredible desire to, to compete at the highest level and uh, I, think th- I think his teammates see that and they feed off that.
2: What would you say to the people who would ask the question of why you moved Nick Foles? You didn't have to. He's a great teammate. He's a great backup. He'll come in and do what's asked of him if and when it's asked of him. Until that happens, he won't cause any issues, won't cause any problems. will support the starter every way he can. He was a model citizen in Philadelphia and obviously a Super Bowl MVP. At the end of the day, why did you decide to move on from him as the veteran backup or potential starter uh, in Jacksonville?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think with Nick and Nick's situation is uh, we weren't looking to move him. We were, we were looking to, to keep him. And then there was a, a handful of teams that had interest in him. And we just felt like if there was value and if we were going to start and we – thought enough of Gardner to name him the starter um, or at least compete with Nick to be a starter that if we can get a, a good value draft pick, which we did out of Chicago and get a, out from underneath the contract, we just felt like it was the best thing to do for the team.
2: Okay. Um, I've gotten many questions from people as to how to best characterize the Jaguars right now. I've heard terms like rebuilding, reloading, retooling, tanking. Right. What's the right word of those that I just mentioned to describe where the Jaguars currently are and what the objective currently is?
3: Well, I saw something you wrote the other day that um, that where you said that uh, it's not uh, they're not mutually exclusive. We're kind of we can still build this thing and compete at a high level and and let the chips fall where they may. And I think what we did was we we cleaned up the salary cap. We're in a great working situation with the salary cap, not only this year, but next year. And um, also felt like that we've gotten better from the 6 and 10 team that we had last year or the 5 and 11 team. Although there were a lot of household names that, that people recognized nationally, um, the product on the field wasn't where it needed to be. So I would say competing. I would say competing and, and building for something that, uh, uh, that can compete this year.
2: You got the second defensive back off the board in this year's draft with C.J. Henderson at number nine. Tell me what attracted you to him in that spot.
3: Well, his rare athleticism and his speed and his length. Uh, He's a perfect fit for our scheme. He's got excellent ball skills, and uh, he competes uh, at a high level against some of the best receivers in uh, uh, college football.
2: And then at number 20, another first-round pick for the Jaguars, the one that came as part of the Jalen Ramsey trade, Caleb on chase on one of my favorite prospects this year. I was stunned he was still there. At number twenty, how surprised were you that he made it through nineteen picks and was still available to be taken by you in that spot?
3: We were surprised, and he was one of my favorite throughout the whole uh, season. And I remember watching him in, in early October and asking our scouts about him, and they're like, "Well, he's a redshirt sophomore; he's not going to come out." I'm like, "This guy's coming out, and he's going to be a top ten pick." And uh, sure enough, he did come out. He wasn't a top ten pick; was close though. And uh, at the end of the day, he's a he's a guy that everything that we want. He's high character, tough, competitive ultimate team guy, can play to run and rush the passer. And uh, we feel like that he has a tremendous uh, developmental upside.
2: You know, we were at the scouting combine, and because of the changes to the schedule this year, we had the opportunity to talk to between 25 and 30 of the prospects. He's the one that stood out to me. He's got a charisma that, that exudes confidence, but it's not in a brash, abrasive way. It's just very matter-of-fact. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And to me, look, that it may not, it may not become the core of a leadership component right away, but that's the kind of guy that I think you want at the heart of your locker room, getting other guys to think the same way and act the same way.
3: Absolutely. And we have a guy like that in Josh Allen right now that we took last year with the, with the seventh pick in the draft and, uh, to have those two guys on, on the opposite ed- edges of each other. And, um, uh, feel like that, that, that's going to be a really good core for us moving forward.
2: You know, it was announced today there won't be any international games in 2020. That means two home games you were going to play in London will now be played in Jacksonville. I, look, I, I know that that's something the organization wanted to do, but from your perspective, trying to win football games, trying to have continuity, it's got to be easier to not have to go over to London and stay there for more than a week to play back-to-back games.
3: Yeah, obviously we'd like to play in front of our fans here in Jacksonville and um, and have the home field advantage. We really appreciate our fans in London, and and actually the game the last seven years has has really been a, a good thing for not only the city of Jacksonville, but, but also for our team. And to be able to go over there for a week, a year, and have our team bond and, and grow together has been a good thing. We've had success on the field over there. Uh, we'll miss our fans over there, but we're eagerly – and overly excited to be able to have two home games here in front of our home fans. And, and we know they'll show up.
2: How close did you come to finding a trade partner for Leonard Fournette?
3: Uh, You know, uh, to be honest with you, there was just some minor discussions about that, but nothing, nothing substantial throughout the draft or even prior to the draft.
2: Is he still available or is the mindset at this point, we go forward with Leonard on the team?
3: I think the mindset is that we're going to go forward with Leonard on the team. I had a good conversation with him on Friday I know Coach Marone's had some discussions with him. Um, He seems to be in great shape and and great um, mental uh, frame of mind, and we feel like that he'll he'll have a great season this year.
2: Coach Marone spoke with Mike Tirico a couple of weeks ago and talked about the reality that Leonard's comments about getting Cam Newton on the team, that's something that Leonard and Gardner are going to have to work out among themselves. When you have a team that's not going to be getting together until who knows when, is it important to get that worked out has it been worked out have they had to your knowledge a conversation where they're on the same page moving forward
3: I'm sure they'll be on the same page both are professional guys and uh and I'm sure uh, a lot of it probably was taken out of context from my understanding um Gardner's a tremendous leader and uh, I think Leonard will will do his best and put in his best foot forward so I don't not to my knowledge I don't know what's been taking place but uh I'm sure it won't be an issue
2: Dave, Dave, I love you, but I can't let you get away with taking out of context. The guy came out and said he wants Cam Newton on the team.
3: Well, I'm sure he'd probably like a lot of people on the team. but um,
2: It's yeah. not fantasy football.
3: Yeah, sure.
2: Um, so, uh, you know, I look at your quarterback depth chart, and we talked earlier about the guys who are available, and I never know where the line is for tampering. Andy Dalton's now under contract with the Cowboys. Can you comment whether or not on, on whether you tried to get him?
3: We did have some discussions with his uh, agent and uh, with him, and uh, I guess I'll leave it at that.
2: Um, Well, I'll leave it at this. I gotta let you get back to your day. I gotta wish you a happy anniversary, 18 years of wedded bliss, and I appreciate you giving us so much of your time on a day when your wife would otherwise expect to see you. But I would guess that given the amount of time you've been home for the past seven weeks, your wife is fine with a break from time to time of having to deal with you. I've been working at home for 11 years and my wife loves it when I get out of her hair for a little bit.
3: She is and uh, she, she gives me the subtle questions. So when are the NFL going to open up their offices again? <laughs> so I, I, I get that question periodically.
2: Uh, well, hey, uh, congratulations on all you've done in Jacksonville. We're rooting for you to get it turned around this year. You got some great young players. It's going to be fun to see how it all falls together. Dave, thanks as always for some of your time and we'll talk to you soon.
3: Thanks Mike, have a great week.